0: Hi, I'm Patrick Palm, CEO and founder of FAVORO, and this is the Learn From Leaders podcast. The background to these interviews is that Favro clients are some of the most innovative and agile businesses out there. And it's used for collaborative planning by marketing teams, by product teams, HR, management teams. And what this means is that we get to know some truly inspiring people. So what we do in this podcast is that I invite them here for a conversation about something where they are true leaders, so we can all learn from it. Let's go. Super, welcome to, to the webinar here, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. I like it. Um, you know, it's
1: a little bit of a reunion because I've known you guys for so long and without kind of E3 and GDC this year, a lot of those kind of you know coffee shop run-ins or whatever haven't been happening. So it's been a great opportunity yeah. to kind of connect with you guys and
0: hear what's going on. And
1: um, so, yeah, I'm happy to be around
0: yeah that 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 is very true. and and you know for the ones that aren't you know familiar with you, you know maybe um, a good start here would be if you could just um kind of give us the whole you know backstory to how you know how did you get into the industry and you know to the to the point uh, you know where you're today
1: yeah yeah I mean uh, John kind of hit the high points, but in a previous life I was actually I got into games through audio, so I was an audio post engineer uh, the first half of my career, my background is music. I did sound design and uh, mixing and composition for radio and television um, and after doing that for about seven or eight years, um, I really started yearning for something that was more creative. A lot of TV spot work and that kind of stuff is very short term you 're banging out you know commercials every two or three days. Um, and I was looking at my options and one on one side, you've got film, right, which is long format entertainment. And then there was video games and, and there was a push in the early 2000s um, towards better audio and games. It was like kind of a mini revolution. At least it got a lot of notice within the audio field, like people that were doing audio professionally in other parts of entertainment really started noticing games. And I had been a gamer since I was a kid um, and serendipitously, as I'm kind of going through that exploration in my head. Um, uh, the studio iron lore had reached out and they were working on a demo to try and pitch their first game Which was like a diablo-esque sort of game um, And I did some demo work for them and and then basically spent the next three years hoping that they would get a full game Contract and take me on and that eventually ended. and so I joined them um, 2004 and that was sort of my first foray into into video games and I worked For about a year and a half with them doing audio and the studio was growing pretty rapidly the project had gotten signed Um, And I just tended to be a super organized person by nature and having done so much television and film work where you're constantly being thrown into really unique situations having to adapt having to plan uh, and still maintain a lot of creativity. uh, They sort of asked if I would produce the game. Of course, I had no idea what that meant, but, you know, I had done the audio thing for a long time, for almost seven or eight years, 10 years at that point. And so I said, sure, I'll give this a shot. And I kind of fell in love with it. And so really from that point forward, I shifted more towards a production track and then eventually um, kind of more running running development. So I worked at uh, Iron Lore for three or four years and they eventually unfortunately shut down. Um, and had friends that had started up at Harmonix, and that was a great intersection of my audio background and obviously my gaming background. And so I started there as a producer. Um, within a few years, I was running the production department, and then six or seven years ago, I actually joined the exec team, um, kind of overseeing development for the whole studio. I was there for 13 years, which was an amazing experience. You know, I got to live through the um, the sort of birth of the the boom of the music game genre that went from being almost completely unknown to being a top three. Um, revenue generating genre in the industry in the late 2000s. Um, and then, um, you know, after 13 years making music games, just really was getting hungry to um, work on new kinds of games and work with new teams. And I had been friends with um, the folks at Unknown Worlds for a long time. In fact, uh, one of the co founders, Max, and I, worked together at Iron Lore way back in the day. Uh, and so as I was sort of looking around for what was next, he and I happened to bump into each other and we started talking. And so um, that led to me joining the team back in March, uh, which was an interesting time to change jobs as COVID was kind of setting in globally. Um, and I, so I've been there with them for the last six months. It's been great. They're a super, super unique uh, team to work for.
0: Uh, awesome. And and um, when we've been having these, uh, these interviews uh, earlier this summer, you know, we kind of have been we have been talking about you know the, the the fact that on one hand side um the game industry today uh is, is bigger than uh, the music and um uh, and film industries combined uh which is fantastic um and obviously playing games is something that you know makes a lot of sense you know when it's you know these COVID times but what we have seen is is, is that a huge difference between Studios that were quite well prepared for this or quickly adapted, you know, to working in a, in a remote fashion. And there's been some studios that just, you know, they 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 like they haven't you know released anything because they just they got like shut down and and um, or or not shut down, but you know they they've really been struggling. Um, so uh, you know, these kind of conversations we've been having this summer uh, in this webinar has been around you know the transition to remote work. But that's not applicable in your case because it was like it was like you know your studio was like born for this you know because you did this from day one. So um, maybe we can rather go into what is the background to that the studio is set up in the way it is and, and the, you know the the thoughts around yeah. that. And of course, you know, if something actually changed, you know, with we, with COVID after all.
1: Yeah, it was um it was super unique situation for me because Harmonics was a very brick and mortar studio and as I think John mentioned Unknown Worlds has been basically distributed since inception. Um, a lot of the reason for that was that they started very small working on a game called Natural Selection, which was sort of based on a, or a Natural Selection 2, which was based on the original Natural Selection, which was a Half-Life mod. So a lot of the original studio came together from a community of sort of mod game developers. And as the studio became viable as an entity, they hired on a lot of those folks. And that game community was an international community. Um, mm-hmm. And so they happened to have... You know different developers that were working with them on a volunteer basis very very early on that eventually became employees and they were you know very much distributed throughout the country so as the studios continued to grow they weren't tied necessarily to a specific location their headquartered technically in the bay area in san francisco but um but um i think as i was mentioning yesterday when we caught up very briefly we're right now distributed across 13 countries seven states in the u.s and seven time zones so um so, so that's been that's sort of been in their DNA from the very beginning. So they uh, it took zero effort to kind of readjust to COVID from a from a workflow standpoint. Obviously, the psychological aspect of all of it has been has been challenging as it has been for every studio. But as far as the day to day way, um, unknown worlds makes games, that's relatively been unchanged.
0: Yeah. So, so there's been a lot of webinars and, and similar. Uh online conversations you know recently around you know so so so, how do we how do we transition to this you know not only ones that we have hosted you know uh, the investors are hosting and, and conferences that have now been going online they tend to have a topic around this and i find that one of the questions that seems toughest for people to, to have a solution to is the time zone difference
1: yeah. and
0: and you mentioned that was that was really part of the dna here from the beginning I, could you just go a little bit deeper on exactly um, you know, to, to handle the, the, the time zone thing? Because I think, I think everyone's really wanting to hear a good answer to that.
1: Yeah, um, I, I guess just to sidebar for that super briefly, um, I was having this conversation, not specifically about time zones, although it's super related with a colleague of mine at Harmonics, And he had this amazing analogy, which I think is super relevant here, is that when you're working with everybody in the same place, especially from a project leadership standpoint, he's sort of akin to hunting, right? You need a piece of information, you need something, the team is right there, you go to the team, you get what you need, basically, and you can move forward and you can control that process because everybody is right there. And he said, when you start working distributed, it's a little more like phishing. You need things and you throw your lines out and you wait for someone to respond to your email to get back to your Slack and you can't control that timeline as much. So what happens is you tend to have to spread out and you start managing multiple threads. Um, And what starts to happen is something that's sort of, I I guess I would describe more as like asynchronous development where Mm -hmm. everyone is making the same game together, but not always exactly the same time. Um, And I think that really is the trick to think about when you're thinking about managing all this work. And I I don't actually think it's as much as a tool and process thing as it is a culture thing within the studio. Um, You know, as I started spending more time at Unknown Worlds and getting to know the team, um, there were these very unique elements that I hadn't really seen anywhere else in terms of the high level of ownership in the games they were making and the way they were making those games across the entire studio. And everyone was um, was sort of very versatile, very T-shaped in that way because they got so used to needing to constantly be able to unblock themselves and move development forward, even if the person they're working closest with is eight hours behind them or six hours in front of them. Um, and I think that's led to a really unique culture where um, – where because of that high level of ownership and that high level of accountability, they're, they're able to kind of make that work. Whereas I think studios coming into this for the first time that are used to hunting and not fishing mm-hmm. are, are need to learn those lessons and figure out how to not just change their tools and their process, but start adapting their culture to to be more flexible in that way.
0: You, you know, you, you, said, uh, you, serve, you said accountability and, and kind of you know, owning it. I, I think that is very spot on. Um, if we look at this uh, uh, from a from a leadership point of view would you say that it also affects the way that you set goals because i guess you know if you have a culture where you you know managers are very very hands-on you know i don't want to say micromanaging but as mm-hmm. close to that as you can get it's going to be extremely hard um you know well basically in 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 know a, a asynchronous way of working you know that just doesn't work so you, you need to you know set goals that uh you know teams and and people can autonomously you know uh deliver uh, on
1: yeah that goal goals is huge and, and trust is another one i think and and almost equally or sometimes more important and that's something that um you know i i worry that a lot of people don't give enough thought to as they're k- kind of making these kind of transitions is that because of the multiple time zones and because you're not there in the same building you know and and i i think there's a little bit of a fallacy in that everyone believes, oh, if you're working there and your manager's right there, you know what's going on because they can walk by and they can see what's on your screen. And I think that provides a sort of false sense of security a lot of times. You know, right. you don't know that that person is necessarily working productively or whatever. But when you're in this remote situation, you don't have that false sense of security you don't have that safety that there's a lot of trust that the person out there in whatever part of the world they're doing their work is getting their work done and that the people that are going to wake up in four hours and go to work have what they need there and so i I think that um both being able to set and clearly talk about goals is important and trusting that everyone is going to then take those tools and take those goals and and be able to work together and move the product forward
0: is equally as important so um I am going to going to you know test the statement with you here now and see if you agree. So so you know when when we designed you know and you know you know our kind of philosophies behind it is is to enable you know autonomy you know end alignments obviously you know the whole kind of you know philosophy around you know if you want to call it OKRs or whatever but you know really setting you know goals on on a somewhat higher level having teams you know autonomously working towards that uh, you know managing flow rather than tasks, you know visualizing mm-hmm. that flow and so forth you know all of these principles that are are um, you know quintessentially agile principles you know it 's what we've you know built this tool upon um, The statement I would like to try with you is that you know now in this in this situation it is really kind of a shit hits the fan situation because you know you might you might have you know leaders that that talk about these values, but if you in practice def have more of a traditional Command and control culture in in mm. management, you know, I, I guess that is going to be brutally um, uh, clear now. You know how 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 that falls apart uh, versus if you're uh, in a place where where you know you might not even use those kind of words. You might just say, "Hey, we trust our team," um, and and that's the fanciest word you, you put on it. Um, you know, you, you know, you, you went into this this period and, and it worked fine. Um, does that resonate with you or do you think I got that wrong?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think, I think that's, that's probably right. I think in some ways this is where COVID may have helped the industry adapt because everybody's going into this with a lot of empathy for what everybody's dealing with, right? So if it was more like a company decided we're going to make this change and, the, and mm-hmm. the rest of the context wasn't there, they may not have been as flexible and as willing to adapt as they have needed to be because they didn't really have a choice in this case, right? Everybody was more or less in the same boat in in almost all the countries where everyone had to shift. And so I think because of that extra level of empathy that was out there and that extra level of, uh, you know, everyone needing to adapt, I think that really helped people maybe take more risk, maybe listen to more and look more carefully at what was going on and reevaluate their own process as opposed to directly coming in and saying like, okay, this is the way we worked in the same building. Now we're going to basically figure out what version of this has to happen at home. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think, I think with, with that, with that exception, I think I I kind of, I I agree with what you're saying is that that there has to be change on a lot of different fronts for that to work.
0: You know, it, it, what you're saying is, you know, tying tying well into you know an old truth around you know change management. It's extremely hard to to change an organization if you if you're not in pain. You know, it it requires a crisis for you to to mm. actually, uh, you know, if you, if you go to tea, I don't know if you read the book The Innovators Dilemma, um, mm. which is which is a fantastic read, and and basically the whole book is about that, you know, changing things when there's a crisis. That that's actually not the hard thing if you're trying to to reinvent yourself when things are going well that is ridiculously hard and uh you know here are some tips for how you can do that it it's it's a fantastic read um so so speaking about culture um i mean you, you know you mentioned um you know harmonics being more of a of a kind of you know brick and mortar um you know situation and i remember when i visited there you know there was um my impression was that it was a, it was a very strong culture uh, but I would I would also guess that the culture is very much you know built in kind of you know a face to face situation over over a long time. Now you know with a with a studio like Anna Worlds where where you know you have a, you're distributed from from the beginning. You know how how do you how do you develop culture and and how do you think that maybe have affected what culture is for you?
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I had I, I had to you know I had to. Coming into the role I was coming into, um, I had to sort of learn very quickly what was, what was um, sort of in the special sauce, right? What allowed them to make a game like Sonotica, How did they make it? Um, and I think what I really learned is that um, there were two things. The studio really, really develops openly with the public and has for a very long time going all the way back to, to even when they were working on natural selection. Um, They have always sort of done everything in kind of an open access format. They've always valued the community. They've always built the game with the community. Um, And I guess to kind of put my plug in for Favreau here, that's been a great tool for doing that because we've been able to um, make boards public and be able to show parts of our backlog publicly and bugs publicly and kind of work and get that feedback. And that's been, that's been really helpful. So I think, I think the desire to um, continue to develop with the people playing the games has been a huge, uh, a huge thing. And, and um, because they've prioritized that, I think that's allowed them to develop their own sort of sets and rules and policy around what's important to them. And that's the thing that's important to them. and has has shaped the culture over, over the years. Um, I think the other thing is just this idea that, um, that everybody has so much impact on the game you know traditionally they have not been a studio that's used producers and they don't have a lot of people in what i would call like a system designer role there they have creative leads at the head of projects they have level designers building levels but they don't really have anyone there whose specific job is to design the game that's kind of a shared responsibility and i think that's where a lot of the ownership comes from um, And i'm still learning a little bit about how that works there but i would say that those two things are probably some of the things that have created the elements about what makes that opportunity or that culture so unique there is that they don't have um, people in roles whose job it is to always make those decisions. And so a lot of that falls back to the team. I think that, you know, I think they have um, valued that since they were very small at the beginning and as they've grown and are continuing to grow, it is one of the things that everyone in the studio uniformly makes sure that we maintain as we continue to evolve as a studio, you know, and one of the first things I did when I joined was I, like interviewed everybody at the company. You know, what's important about this place? What do we have to make sure we preserve? And unanimously, it was those things. We should be making games with our players. We should be making sure that everybody's voice is heard on the team and that everyone feels like they, they were part of this and not just someone who made this little piece, um, and I think you know, and that that becomes very very difficult to do when you're when you're a much much larger studio and you're accomplishing really you know ambitious titles with the scope of world that you know massive games have. But, you know that said, uh, Subnautica is an open world survival game with a with a with a you know like a twenty ish hour storyline really, and that constitutes in my mind a you know pretty big scoped game, and they were able to do that with a fairly small team. Um, um, you know, using that sort of bag of tricks that they developed over the years and quite successfully, you know, the out, the output of that was it's done, the game's done really well. It's a very, you know, very well put together game. It's a great experience um, and innovative and unique, you know, within that sort of genre. Um, so, and I, I think a lot of that is attributed to culture. They have a great team, but that mm. that team has built that culture at the studio and, um, and they're very, very aware of what they have and protecting that, As the studio evolves, I would say project teams have a sort of a game director, creative director role and there's, you know, usually someone who's the sort of senior engineer on the project and there's an art director on the project but outside of that it's really, really flat and people kind of integrate very organically like I joined the studio, sort of as the development director and we continue to refine what that means based on me getting to understand how they want to work and how they want to grow. Um, But it's, it's, everybody's pretty accepting of like, okay, what do we need to do? What's the most important thing to go back to, um, you know, uh, Patrick's point about goal driven development? What are we trying to accomplish in two months and three months and five months in the next year? What do we need to do to get there? Um, that's the conversation we tend to have, not sort of like, well, who's in what position and where do we have to put them to be most effective? It's all about what are we trying to get done and, and how do we leverage the talent we have to do that and a lot less about people's title and, and sort of position they're in within the studio or within a project.
0: I um, I like what you said about um, using uh, uh, the, the public collection uh, functionality of Favreau and i i i also very much you know liked the i saw your 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 trailer board which is all have one card uh we <laughs> moved to fantastic. <Favreau>. that's fantastic <laughs> so that's great. i didn't i but, didn't know but, they but, had
1: but, done that that's funny
0: yeah 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 just to wrap up a little bit you know i i uh, i kind of want to just go a little bit more in, into into you know uh favreau and and um what are the specific um you know challenges that 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 has been addressed you know you know using using favor used to get a little bit of kind of a case, um, yeah. case examples here.
1: Um, well, I mean, one of my favorite ones, I'm actually going to jump backwards on my timeline and experience with the product, is that um, when I was at Harmonix, we made a game called Dropmix, which was a collaboration with Hasbro. Uh, and it was pretty interesting in that it was a collectible card game that was done on a board. Um, and the cards all had... Um, NFC chips in them, and so you would drop cards on the board and it it was like a music generator and card game. And um, when we were working on the look and the the visual idea of the game, we really wanted every card as in any collectible card game to be super unique visually. And um, the way we approached that was we went off and hired um, all independent concept artists and illustrators to do the cards. So instead of using our internal art team and had a small number of artists making a lot of cards, we basically decided we were going to use a large number of artists across all different styles of art um, and and we used Favreau to track all that and a lot of it was due somewhat to the to the flexibility of the product, as you kind of mentioned earlier, but a lot of it was how visual it can be, especially when using art. So we were able to like, really make every image the front and center point of each Favreau card and to see it go through the pipeline and through art, you know, all the art direction was done on the card. Um, within in the Favreau card on the actual art card. And we were able to move, um, I think we had 50 or 60 uh, contract artists all working on that project, each doing a handful of cards. And so we just had this massive Favreau board, you know, with 50 lanes on it with like 300 cards all all moving through development uh, on the project. It was pretty, it was pretty awesome. You know, in Unreal worlds, I think it's still those two pillars that we leverage the most, the accessibility um, and flexibility of the product in terms of being able to let every team work a little bit differently. And um, the, the you know Unknown Worlds develops very organically. And so, for example, if a strike team spins up to solve a problem during a milestone, it's very easy to like, oh, you know what? We're just gonna go and create a board for this and put all the work there. And it doesn't conform to like a strict Agile methodology where you would have to configure your project to match the way Agile's supposed to be done by the book. You're basically able to kind of, the tool supports breaking the rules in a lot of these nice ways, I think. Um, And and the visual aspect, which I mentioned before, harmonics comes into play all all the time. You know, I think it's just great to be able to, um, one of the things that's most important with a distributed team is visibility into the progress that everyone else is making. And when you can have current work surfaced on the card and visible during standup. It's It's just a great way to get the game in front of the team when people can tend to be siloed and working on their own features. And so I think that's another, that's another piece of it that's been really useful and, and, and helpful for us.
0: All right, super. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly did. If you want to elevate yourself as a modern leader and help your teams become even more successful, then check out favor academy at faro.com. They will find podcasts, webinars, articles, all for of charge. Check it out.